This is KMTT. Tuesday, Parshat HaShavua, will be delivered by Rav Alex Israel. Uh, this week we shall talk about Chai Sarah. Um, Chai Sarah contains three stories. Uh, the first being the purchase of the cave of Machpelah, Marat HaMachpelah, and the field which is adjacent to it. The second story um, is the story of finding a wife for Yitzchak. <clears throat> and the third story um, is Avram's third marriage. He marriages, marries a woman called Keturah, um, sends all his Pilagshim and other children that he has away, me'al Yitzchak bono, away from Yitzchak, and uh, then he passes away. Uh, Avram, the, the, the end of the parasha describes the death of Avraham. Um, these three stories are the only stories we know of Avraham's life after the Akedah. And one wonders why these are the three most significant stories. A second question which uh, is raised in, the, in looking at the parsha is that the parsha would appear to say things that it could have said in a rather concise way at great length. That is certainly true about Perak Haftalad, uh, the chapter where we hear about... Uh, Avraham's servant finding a wife for Yitzchak. However, it is also true about the opening parak, Perak Chaf Gimel, where Avraham seeks to purchase a cave or a burial place for his uh, beloved wife, Sarah. And when one reads uh, this parasha, one wonders why it cannot be said in a, in a faster way, in a quicker, more concise way. Um, some people will claim that it is important to describe the haggling between uh, Avraham and Ephron, and many academics have pointed out that the text reveals a, a very rich use of terminology, legal terminology, that uh, matches Near Eastern court records uh, from all sorts of uh, contracts and other things that we have found in Mesopotamian and other uh, cultures. However, that wouldn't seem... Uh, to be enough, especially as we have evidence of purchases of uh, land purchases, which are said in far more concise ways. I'll give you an example. In Parshat Vayishlach, uh, a few weeks hence, um, Yaakov uh, buys a field. Yaakov buys a field just outside Shechem. It's in the end of Paraklamid Gimel. Paraklamid Gimel, Pasuk Yutet. And it says there, Vayavoy Yaakov Shalem Ir Shechem. Yaakov comes to the city of Shechem. Asher Eretz Kanaan, which is in the land of Kanaan. Vayichan et Pnei Ha'ir, he encamps just outside the city. Vayiken et Chalkat HaSadeh, Asher Natasham Aholo. And he purchased that portion of the field where he had encamped. Miyad Bnei Chamor Avishchem Sita. He paid Meak Sita, some sort of currency, and uh, he purchased the field, the area where he is... Um, pitched his tent. That's pretty concise. That is in one pasuk. One pasuk it takes for Yaakov to buy uh, a field. And with Avraham, we have a perek which is 20 pasukim long. What is it that the Torah is trying to tell us in this perek that needs such a length, such a, such a protracted description of the negotiations here? Here I'd like to go into a few different views of the Mepharshim 
uh, to try and see what they have said about this topic. However, we shall see soon that uh, the, the, the approaches of the Mufrashim uh, don't necessarily help us to the requisite degree, and we're going to resort to, to certain uh, other explanations. I'll, I'll go through a few options that the Mufrashim deal with. Um, the Ibn Ezra. Ibn Ezra says, "Beniskarazel taparsha lhodia maalat eretz Yisrael al kol haaratzot lechayim velamitim." That so we mention this parsha and maybe the great length of this parsha is to emphasize the value of eretz Yisrael, both for those alive and for those even who are dead. In other words, Abraham had to go to extensive lengths in order to ensure that he buried his dead in eretz Yisrael. And the second thing this teaches us, that this is Avraham's first purchase in the land. This is a very significant moment. Uh, Avraham is purchasing a bit of Eretz Yisrael, and now is the beginning of the fulfillment of the, of the promise of the land to Avraham. The Ramban, Nachmanides, uh, doesn't like this approach at all. He rejects the Ibn Ezra for two reasons. He says, I don't get it. How does this story help us to understand the value of Eretz Yisrael, for the living and the dead? Would Avraham have transported Sarah to bury her outside the land? Of course he has to bury her where she dies. And therefore, this wouldn't necessarily prove this at all. As for the notion that he is now gaining his first Nachala, his first inheritance in the land, um, he says this is uh, not true at all, uh, because he says that this uh, is not what God promised him. God promised him the entire land. He promised the land for his descendants. The fact that he bought a small field is not really significant. And therefore the Ramban adopts a different approach. The Ramban says, this story comes to tell us the kindnesses of God to Abraham, that he was recognized as a prince of God in the land which he had only come to as a stranger. And individuals and groups of people would call him Adoni. They would call him my master. He didn't tell them that he was a great man even in his own lifetime he fulfilled the promise that he would become a great, his name and his reputation would be great. Now we shall deal with uh, some of the themes that the Ramban speaks about. Uh, is Abraham seen as a stranger or is he seen as a special person? But once again, uh, one wonders why you need 20 psukim to say this. Uh, moreover, Rashi's approach is that maybe Ephron here was even trying to trick him, that the whole thing was staged in order to bump up the price. And even if you don't agree with Rashi, um, one wonders whether this we needed this story to tell us that Avraham was respected after all. Already in Perak Chaf Aleph, we have seen that he is greatly respected by Avimelech. And uh, the only place where we see the extensive respect to Avraham is in the use of the word uh, in Pasuk Vav, well, they could have in st included that without resorting to 20 Pesukim. 
And therefore, I do think we need a different uh, matrix, a different way of, of understanding this. So let me try and uh, elaborate and try and open up a different line of explanation. And let's start with a comment by Rashi, um, where Rashi points out an, Avraham's introduction. Sarah has died uh, in Hebron. Avraham comes. It's not clear where he comes from. Maybe he comes from the field. Maybe he comes from another location where he was grazing his his, his flocks. To cry for Sarah, to eulogize her. And when he is finished with the, the eulogy, he speaks to the, some, a group of people known as Bnei Chet. And he introduces himself by saying, Ger v'toshav anochi imachem. I am a stranger. I am a resident amongst you. Now, if you think about these phrases, um, a ger, a stranger is somebody who is a vagrant, who is a wanderer, who doesn't belong in a given place. A toshav is somebody who is a local resident with all the responsibilities of, 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 of somebody who's part of society. And therefore, these things actually, this, these descriptions actually clash. Ger clashes with a toshav. And Avraham uses this unusual, peculiar hybrid. Ger v'toshav anokim hashem. I am a stranger and a resident. Rashi picks up on this and he says, Ger me'eret acheret. I am a stranger from other lands. V'nityashavti imachem. I came to live amongst you. Umidrash agada. And then and apparently that is the meaning of the phrase according to Rashi. But then he quotes a midrash which says, Im tzu hareni ger. If you want, I am a stranger, and you can give it to me as a kindness, I guess. The imlav toshav, and if not, I will become a resident. and I will take it by right. Eventually, I will be a resident, and I will gain the title deed to this land. Um, Rashi is playing on these contrasts between ger and toshav, and uh, in a famed piece. Rav uh, Soloveitchik picks up on this on this lovely contrast between Gerba Toshav and makes it into uh, a classic archetype of the Jew. Maybe we'll read a few lines from uh, the book Reflections of the Rav, which brings some of the Rav's drashot. I'll read a few lines. Avraham's definition of his dual status, we believe, describes with profound accuracy the historical position of the Jew who resides in a predominantly non-Jewish society. He was a resident like the other inhabitants of Canaan, sharing with them a concern for the welfare of society, digging wells and contributing to the progress of the country in loyalty to its government and institutions. Here Avraham was clearly a fellow citizen, a patriot amongst compatriots, joining others in advancing the common welfare. However, there was another aspect, the spiritual, in which Avraham regarded himself as a stranger. His identification and solidarity with his fellow citizens in the secular realm did not imply his readiness to relinquish any aspects of his religious uniqueness. He was a different faith and he was governed by perceptions, truths and observances which set him apart from the larger faith community. In this regard, Avram and his descendants would always remain strangers. And he says... Like other people, the Jew has more than one ident- identity. He is always a part of the larger family of my- mankind, but he also has a Jewish identity which separates him from others. 
The Rav, uh, Rav Soloveitchik here, is uh, discussing and expanding the notion of Gerba Toshav as a typology of, of any Jew, any man of faith who finds himself in wider society, where on the one hand we have our responsibilities to society, but on the other hand we have our own unique faith identity. Um, and somehow this uh, dichotomy between Gerba Toshav, which Rashi picks up on, which Rostolovitchik expands, I actually believe um, in a sort of slightly narrower sense than Rostolovitchik intended, is at the heart of what is going on here at the beginning of Parashat Chaye Sarah. Let me try and uh, outline the approach that I am going to develop. Avraham introduced himself as Ger Toshav. Avraham has been around, he lived in Hebron for a great number of years, we see him in Hebron from Perak to Gimel, uh, from after the split with Lot, all the way through his marriage to Hagar and the birth of Ishmael, uh, until after the story of uh, Saddam. He is there for, for a good number of years. He is well known probably to the people of Hebron. However, how do they perceive him? How do they perceive him? He always lives in a tent. He doesn't have a stone dwelling. He wanders from place to place, maybe as, as all shepherds do, uh, and he has never particularly settled down. In fact, after his uh, period of, uh, of living around Hebron, he moved off to the Beersheba area, to Grar, for a good number of years. Avram is, is transient, he is a gear, he's never bought land, he's not part of the uh, local community, he's not, he doesn't have his own chamula, he doesn't have his own family unit. Um, the people of Hebron look at him as a ger. They look at him as somebody who is who is transient, somebody who is temporary. And I think I'd go even even more, even further than that. I think they don't really understand why he has a need for land at all. Um, why would somebody have a need for land? Avram doesn't subsist from the land. This is actually a field which has a cave at the end of it. One imagines, and if you know the sort of the scenery in Eretz Yehuda. The valleys are where the fields are, that's where the rich soil is and the water, uh, the rainwater pours into these uh, valleys. And therefore one imagines a, a field, the Sedeha Machpelah, um, which borders on the bedrock, it borders into the rock face, and probably in the, in the side of the rock, uh, that is where the cave is, the Kever Machpelah, in, in, in the side of the rock. Why does Avram need this field? Um, does he have a large family who are going to tend it? Here is, here is an elderly man, 137 years old. He's not going to get out and work his field. Uh, how about his children? I mean, we're dealing with societies where families live in groups. So we're going to see the B'nai Chait. The B'nai Chait seems to be a, a group, a sort of a, a family group. Uh, who has Avram got? Avram has got Yitzhak. And as we will find out later in the parasha, Yitzhak lives in the Negev. He doesn't even live with his parents. Avram does not have a sort of family group with many, many children and grandchildren, great-grandchildren around him, all working on the farm. Why does Avram need a field? And therefore, when Avram approaches the people of, of Hebron, the people of Bnei Chait, he introduces himself and says, I'm a stranger, I'm a resident amongst you, you know me. This language is interesting, Achuzat Kever. Achuzah, um, 
means some sort of a place which you can let a khaz, you can hold on to. Abraham wants a holding in the land. Um, we'll talk about this in a, in a moment. And he wants to bury his dead there. B'nai Chait around him and says, Shema'einu Adani, that's the legal language, Shema'einu. But, Nasi Elohim Atabatochenu, you're a man of religion. You are a prophet. You are welcome to bury your dead amongst us. Notice their language. Nobody in our group will withhold their burial site from you. In other words, what are they saying to Abraham? Abraham, you're only a stranger. You're only passing through. If you need a burial place for your wife, it would be an honor for you to bury your wife. And when the time comes, you yourself in our burial cave. We have plenty of room in our burial caves. Why don't you just use our burial cave? After all, real estate is very expensive in the district of Hebron. Why would you want to invest so heavily here when after you are gone, you are an elderly man, there will be no one left to, to tend your field and to preserve your inheritance? So they're saying to him, Use our kvarim. Avraham understands that they are treating him with respect and therefore in Pasuk Zayin, Vayakam Avraham Vayishtachul Al-Haretz Nechet. However, he says, I don't want to bury my dead before you. I don't want to bury my dead in your cave. I want to likbor et meiti milafanai. I have seen a field that is available. I would like to buy it so that my dead will be buried before me. And therefore I want the Ma'amrata Machpelah Sheloah Shebiksei Sadehu. I want his field. And, 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 and what happens? Um, he goes to see Ephron. This is L'chol Ba'i There's a huge audience. It's apparent that Avraham's presence in the city is, is significant. Everybody wants to know about this. And he says to him, verse 11, Lo Adoni Shema'eni. I'm giving it to you for free. You're welcome to the cave. Bury your dead. Again, why is Ephron being so generous? What, he's giving things away? No, Ephron is acting in the same way as Bnei Chait. Here we have a man of religion. He wants a place for his family. Clearly he wants it, uh, this cave, so that he can bury him and his wife alone. Wonderful. But once Avraham and Sarah die, I assume that Ephron imagines he's given it for nothing, he will get it back for nothing. And this is where Avraham bows down to Ephron. Again, he recognizes the compliment that he says to Ephron, in front of everybody, in front of all the witnesses, you don't understand. If you only hear me, I want to pay for this. I don't want it to be your field which I am using. I want it to be um, my real estate, my field, my achuza. I need it to be mine. And it is then that Avraham weighs out the money, which Rashi thinks is an exorbitant price, but I have no reason to think this is in public. There's no reason to think that Ephron overcharged Avraham. Avraham simply paid the price. They were intending on giving it to him to him for free. To summarize, the people of Hebron were looking at Avraham as a ger. But he wanted to look at himself as a toshav. Avraham suddenly feels the need to establish roots, to make himself a resident, to put um, 
something down which will be forever. In fact, we should realize that this cave of Machpelah becomes an anchor, becomes a homing point for the Jewish people after this. Um, the best way I can, I can think about this is, is actually in a, in a personal note. I recall very, very strongly when my uh, grandmother passed away and my grandparents uh, lived in England and uh, my grandmother had been sick for, for a while. But for, for, for all their lives, they had uh, paid money to the burial society in England and they had obviously burial plots paid for them from all the years that they'd, they'd paid their dues. And yet, um, my grandfather decided that he should bury uh, his wife after she passed away. He should bury her in Yerushalayim in Israel. And when I said to him, Grandpa, why are you doing this? He said to me, all my grandchildren live in Israel. Who will visit the Kever? Who will even know? If my grandchildren in Israel, I want to bury my wife in Israel. What I learned from this story is the fact that we look at burial maybe as the end of a life. We look at the burial as the place where a person goes after they have lived. But actually, the burial place is an achuzah. It is a holding point for future generations. It's a place which the children and the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren go back to, to understand where they came from, to understand who this person was. And maybe if we can think about all the heritage tours that people um, are engaging in nowadays, whether it's to Poland or to Prague or to other shtetlach, to see where our forebears come from, we have a need to connect. Throughout Sefer Breshit, Kever Pelah is a place which all the generations come to in order to bury their dead. And more than any other person, it is Yaakov who turns around to his children and asks him to be buried, particularly in Kever Bury me with my fathers. This is in chapter 49. Again, a very lengthy language. The field which is in the, the sorry, the, the, the cave which is in the field of Machpelah on the face of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham brought from Ephron. There Abraham and Sarah are buried, he says. There Yitzchak and Rivka are buried. And there I buried Leah. Please go back to that field. It made an impression on Yaakov, and it may be made even a greater impression on his son, Yosef. Because if you think about it, Yosef, more than all the other children, of Yaakov is associated with Mitzrayim. One may, may, white, may well imagine that Yosef would have uh, had a very nice mausoleum in, 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 in uh, the Valley of the Kings in, in Egypt. And yet, of all the children, it is Yosef who insists, I'll not Mitzrayim. I don't belong here. I don't belong here. I saw the way that my father insisted that he not be buried here, that he go back, back to that anchor in Eretz Yisrael, this is a place that Avraham insisted remains in the family. Avraham becomes a Toshaz. Avraham establishes roots. It is with the death of Sarah that Avraham understands that he is uh, making himself a place in Eretz Yisrael, which is going to be there for future generations, which they will all come back to, which they will all remain connected to. And, that, and through that site, very ironically, a burial site, a site of death, they remain connected in life to Eretz Israel.
So here Avraham is, 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 is saying, I can't be a ger, I have to be a toshav, I need that sense of permanence. My belief is that this theme continues throughout the entire parasha. And let me try, try and develop this in the last few minutes that we have of this podcast. The next parasha is finding a wife for Yitzchak. Yitzchak is already getting on, he's 37 years old and he needs to get married. And he sends his slave to his family all the way in Mesopotamia. And he says, he makes his slave swear, again, a very strong sense of insistence, just like he was insistent in Hebron, he's insistent in making his slave take an oath. And he says like this, he says, Lo tikach isha livni knani asher anochi yoshev b'kirbo. Do not take a wife for my son from the daughters of Canaan, amongst whom I am living. And then Bafrashim asked the question, why did he need to say, Asher Anochi Yoshev Bekirbo? Clearly, Avraham lives amongst the Canaanites. He could have just said, don't take a wife for my son from Canaan. The answer to that question is very clear. It is that here, Asher sort of means, because. Don't take a wife for my son from the daughters of Canaan, because I live amongst them. There's a very beautiful passage in the Kliakar where he develops this and says, it was vital for, y- for Avraham that Yitzchak's home represent the values of Avraham. It'd be a Beit Avraham. It represents the values, the ideals, the norms of the world of Avraham. Now, had Yitzchak married a local girl, one of the Canaanite women, uh, what would have happened? Well, on various family occasions, on weddings, the whole family, the children, the grandchildren will have to go to celebrate with the Canaanites. The Canaanites would come to visit. We're dealing with a culture which is highly pagan. We're dealing with a culture which has a very different value set to the values that Avraham wants to share. And therefore it is imperative that Avraham insisted that Yitzchak not marry a local girl. It is for that very self-same reason that Yitzchak is not allowed to go and live in Aram Naharayim, which is not really a particularly better place uh, from the from the values perspective. But what has to happen? To find a wife from far away, and that wife will transplant herself, will emigrate, and will come to Eretz Yisrael. And in that way, the house of Yitzchak will be somewhat isolated, somewhat cut off. But Avram here, when he makes the Eved, when he makes, according to Chazal, it's Eliezer, take his oath, what's he saying? He is saying, I am going to be insistent. This is un- You are under oath. There are conditions here. Under no conditions are you allowed to ha- have him marry a local girl. And there is un- no way that he's going to live there. Avraham once again insistent, insistent that Yitzchak remain alone, away from the local population, without family ties in Canaan, which can lead to uh, a, a watering down of his values, which can lead to a degree of assimilation. The third story is interesting as well, because in the third story it's very reminiscent of something we've already heard in Parsha, in Sefer Breshit. It says here, Yosef Abraham He marries another woman called Keturah, and he has many children with them, with her. A whole bunch of kids. Yokshan Yaladit Shiva, Vet Dadan. There's a whole family here. And now it says, 
And apparently in his old age, as he was approaching death, Vayitain Abraham et kol ashelo Yitzchak. Abraham gave everything to Yitzchak. Olivneha pilag shim ashel Abraham. And to the children of Abraham's concubines, maybe including this woman, Keturah. Natan Abraham matanot. He gave them presents. He gave them wealth. But within Yitzchak's lifetime, he sent them away, Kedma and Eretz Kedem, to the easterly place. And then it says that Avram died. What is this story? This story tells us that Avram had many other children, and yet, before he died, he made a move. He gave them all presents. He he gave them uh, each a, a, an endowment. He gave them a gift so that they could live very nicely. However, everybody was sent away from Yitzchak. Why? Because Yitzchak was to remain clearly as his only heir, bearing the legacy of the house of Abraham. What we see in this parsha is a very interesting um, theme. That Abraham is clearly acting with insistence to establish roots and to establish the future. First with the Bnei Chet. He buys the field and it has to be purchased in public and it has to be his. And only there, in an achuzah, will he bury Sarah. In finding a wife for Yitzchak, he insists that Yitzchak will not marry a local girl, will not have local ties, will not be related by marriage to the Canaanites so that this will not lead to some sort of cultural uh, dilution or assimilation. And third of all, before he dies, he makes it very clear who is his heir. This is Abraham in his old age. Abraham worrying about the future. Abraham insisting that the future, that the future will be um, solid and that he is securing that the next generation will be in a position where it can continue the work that he did. Now, one wonders what engendered this change in Abraham. What made Abraham suddenly adopt this tack, this line? And I'd like to suggest something which I think is definitely true. One could say that the death of Sarah um, sort of gave him a clearer sense of his own mortality. And therefore he started worrying about the future more than he had in the past. And I think that there's obviously a high possibility that that is the truth. However, I'd like to say something further. You know, this parsha is called Chaye Sarah and it's somewhat ironic because Sarah's dead during this parsha. But if you think about the life of Sarah, the whole life of Sarah was a was a life, and what we know about Sarah, Sarah was exceptionally self-sacrificial. Sarah always gave up her own role for Abraham. If you think about it, what do we know about Sarah? First, we know that Sarah um, traveled with Abraham. Moreover, everywhere they traveled, she said she was his sister so that he would not be killed. That's a very self-effacing act. Later on, um, when Abraham, see it, or when every, Abraham and Sarah see that they are not having children, it is Sarah who invites Hagar into Avram's bedroom. Sarah suggests, why don't you marry Hagar? It's not Avram's suggestion, it's Sarah's suggestion. What woman would allow another woman to come into her marriage? Simply because of the dream that a husband will have, Zera will have a future. Sarah is willing to give up her place once again. And she's thinking about the future. And in yet another scene, 
we all recall the, 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 the image where Sarah looks out and sees Yishmael and Yitzchak and understands that if Yishmael is in the family, him being uh, 14 years older than Yitzchak, the likelihood that everybody will view Yishmael as Avram's heir and that Avraham will, will automatically, everything of his will pass down primarily to Yishmael, it, it's obvious. And that was the point where she saw Yishmael and said, Yishmael has to go. What does she say? Garesh Amahazot. This woman has to be has to be thrown out. Yishmael cannot inherit. The issue is inheritance. Avraham is the man of Chesed. He invites everybody in. He's kind. He's warm. Sarah is the woman who makes the hard decisions in the family. Sarah is always thinking about the continuity. She's worried about Avraham's life, and therefore she says, "Achoti, I am his sister." She's worried about Avraham's children. And therefore she allows Hagar into the marriage. And when she sees Yishmael as a threat, she says, nothing is going to meddle with my son Yitzchak. Yitzchak has to be the rightful heir. Avram can be the Isha Chesed precisely because he has Sarah by his side. But now Sarah is gone. Now Sarah is dead. And now how does Avram act? I believe that Avram Dafka acts in this way, in this parasha, because he has to make make up for the loss of Sarah. Avram has to be able to act in a Sarah-like way. He, he suddenly turns his attention, rather than opening his tent wide to welcome everybody in, he starts ensuring that he has an Achuzat Kever, which will be a place where all his descendants can return to. He ensures that his son is married, so there will be a continuity, and he ensures that marriage takes place in such a way that Yitzchak will remain true to the values of his house. And then, before his death, Avraham ensures, once again, in a very, very, uh, in, a, in a passage very reminiscent of the Yishmael story, um, that all of his various children from other wives and concubines leave the homestead, and only Yitzchak is left, because Yitzchak is to be the true continu- continuer of Avraham's line. So this is Avraham taking on Chaye Sarah, Avraham taking on the legacy of Sarah, in order to ensure the future, his future, the future, the covenantal future, which is both Abraham's and Sarah's. Thank you very much. Shabbat Shalom. Abraham taking on the legacy of Sarah.